Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed, the channel where Eastern theology meets Western skepticism. I'm Arjuna and today we're going to be discussing hermeneutics. I've got Krishna Satyaswami on. He's an academic. He studied at Oxford University and he's going to be talking to us about hermeneutics. Um, let's start. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? And then we'll get into the topic. Okay, well, first, thank you for having me on your program. Um, it's an exciting title you have, Theology Unleashed. <laughs> and uh, I hope I can, I can um, bring something to the discussion, something worth considering. Uh, my career started at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, several decades ago, I interrupted studies to become a monk in the Hare Krishna movement, ISKCON. 23 years later, I returned to university to finish uh, a degree in religious studies and then a master's degree at Graduate Theological Union, Berkeley and doctorate at University of Oxford. I've done um, some teaching. I'm very much a late starter in the academic world. So still I've done some teaching, University of Florida and at Chinese University of Hong Kong. And uh, I have also taught at University of Pula in Croatia, of all places. And I've done uh, a certain amount of what I call freelance lecturing in universities, uh, in particular in China. And um, in fact, I've just uh, published a book with Yunnan University Press called Advancing Across the Great River. Uh, about, well, about hermeneutics, uh, focusing on the tradition of yoga and considering it in relation to other traditions, including Christianity, Buddhism, uh, traditional Chinese uh, thought, religion, and um, a general introduction to a major text of what we now call the Hindu tradition, the Bhagavad Gita. So what is hermeneutics and why should we care about it? Hermeneutics, the, this rather fancy word, uh, which has come from the Greek, has to do with interpretation. Um, it's generally associated with interpretation of texts, uh, and what is interpretation? It's about understanding and deriving meaning. Uh, it's not limited to texts. It involves often uh, the broader category called semiotics or semiotics, uh, which is the study of signs. Signs can include uh, written signs, texts. Um, but also images of all kinds. It can involve gestures, um, 
all kinds of human-based uh, expression. And we may say that taking this a very simple example, a stop sign on the road uh, has a meaning, it has a purpose for being there, which is to tell drivers to stop the car. And so there's interpretation involved. Uh, it's an interpretation which is meant to uh, bring about a certain action. But someone coming from another planet may look at this, what we call a stop sign, and um, may interpret it in a completely different way. They might, who knows how they might see it. So that would be an example of interpretation uh, based on a certain convention or a combination of conventions, uh, the convention of the, the word uh, with these particular letters, S-T-O-P, as we call them, uh, combining to make a, a word stop and then a convention of that having a certain meaning and then that being placed on a red sign. Um, I don't know if you have the same in New Zealand, but most places I know. Uh, a octagonal or, yeah, octagonal sign or six-sided sign. I don't know. Um, the whole thing together has a certain message. So that's that's interpretation, and of course, it becomes uh, much more complex when we get into uh, um, elaborate written texts. And in particular, it's a concern in the area of theology. So um, we have traditions of um, of hermeneutic approaches. I should say hermeneutics is the interpretation, and it's also the methodology uh, that's used in interpretation, uh, which may be established by people within an interpretive community, uh, which is generally the same uh, as the community which takes a particular text as, uh, in the case of religion, as a sacred text, uh, possibly as a revelation, a revelatory text. Uh, it becomes very important to get the right meaning. If this is revelation, if it's coming, if it's coming from God or if it's coming from uh, representative or representatives of God, we want to make sure we get the message and get it right so that's hermeneutics in a in a nutshell so i guess our focus today will be scriptural hermeneutics so the first question would be how do you work out what scripture which, which books are you going to take as providing divine knowledge and which ones are you going to relegate um, is there some kind of system to how we work that out We have a, a system in our tradition. I'm, I'm going to be speaking from my own tradition 
uh, within the very broad, uh, what we generally call Vedic tradition, uh, coming from Veda, the word Veda has uh, the generic sense of knowledge. And it also refers to a collection of texts called Veda. Uh, we might go into details on that later. Um, but then within this very broad sphere of Vedic tradition, there are so many branches and sub-branches. And I belong in particular to the Vaishnava tradition, uh, where Vaishnava is derived from uh, the name Vishnu, where Vishnu is a name for the supreme being or God. Uh, the uh, Vaishnava is one who uh, understands or worships uh, Vishnu as supreme. And although it's, it can be confusing, Although we're called Vaishnavas, our interest turns out to be less in Vishnu as such as in Krishna, where we understand the, uh, the source, the original form, uh, is Krishna, who then expands uh, and takes on particular functions in creation and so on. Uh, that form is Vishnu. So Vaishnava, and then uh, it becomes a little more particular in what we call Godiya Vaishnava. Godiya uh, refers to a, originally to a geographical area um, focused centrally in what is now called Bengal, West Bengal, the state of northeastern uh, India. It's sometimes also called Chaitanya Vaishnavism because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, is very much considered the founder of this tradition in the early 16th century. And he, his advent, as we say, uh, was in a particular area of present-day West Bengal, so Gaudiya Vaishnava. So our core basis for understanding how to select uh, which sacred texts uh, to take as, as, as primary comes from a uh, philosopher, theologian of the late 16th century named Jiva Goswami, who was a follower of Sri Chaitanya. Jiva Goswami wrote uh, a set of texts called Shatsandarbha. Uh, these are Shat means six, six uh, Sandarbhas or treatises. And I would say, I'm, I'm inclined to compare him with St. Thomas Aquinas in um, the Christian tradition in terms of Aquinas's uh, composing of the Summa Theologica. 
or theologiae, I get the pronunciation always wrong. Um, it's so the the Shatsandarbas is a very comprehensive work, which begins with an analysis of how do we decide uh, which texts to take as our core basis for understanding uh, spiritual truths or in eternal or enduring truths. Uh, this first text is called the Tattva Sandarbha, where Tattva, uh, Tattva can be translated as uh, principles. Um, it can also be translated as uh, categories. And what uh, Jiva Goswami does in the first part of this book is a process of elimination, we may say, in which he considers, first of all, pramana, uh, the pramana kanda. Pramana means uh, the means of knowing. It's the epistemology of the Vaishnava tradition. So he looks at uh, what traditionally are counted traditionally in the Vedic tradition as a total of some 10 different sorts of ways of knowing. And basically he reduces these, <laughs> he reduces these down um, looking for the most reliable source of knowledge. Apologies for some of the side sound. We're, we're in a holiday place here in northern Poland. People with their small children. There's not much of it coming through your mic, fortunately. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> he does a process of um, elimination, we may say in which he, he says, first of all, before we do the elimination, let's look at our human condition and recognize that we have, as human beings, four uh, limitations to our knowing. And the four types of, limination, uh, of limitation, Brahma, Pramad, Vipralipsa and Karana Patava uh, in Sanskrit. First is we tend to make mistakes. Uh, the second is that uh, uh, we tend to be subject to illusion. The third is uh, Karana Patava. Uh, uh, Brahm Pramad Vipralipsa, Vipralipsa, the tendency uh, to, to cheat, uh, to make claims of knowledge uh, which are not actual. Uh, and the final one, Karana Patava, means that we, our senses are imperfect. They have uh, their limitations. 
And we can elaborate on these, but the point is that Jiva Goswami says, recognizing these faults, now let us look at the particular types of ways of knowing that there are. Uh, and the first one he starts with is called Pratyaksha. Essentially, it, it means sense perception. And he analyzes what are the, the problems with sense perception, uh, which are probably familiar with uh, all of us. Um, he gives a few examples. The second uh, type of knowing is essentially reasoning, anumana. Um, sometimes or generally employing some sort of logical reasoning reasoning, formal or informal logic, uh, for which there's a classic um, syllogism given in uh, the Vedic tradition. And the third, uh, which turns out to be the, the crucial one, is called Shabda. Shabda means literally sound or word, and it comes to mean something like testimony in the sense of someone witnessing something uh, and then saying, I have seen uh, whatever it is that's at issue. And then uh, what, what he does is he shows by this process of elimination that of the 10 types of ways of knowing, uh, the one which is um, reliable in a class by itself is Shabda. So what he calls Shabda Pramana. And the other forms of knowing may be supportive uh, to this one Shabda. But what sort of Shabda? He says it, it's not just anyone's word. It has to be from a reliable person. And who is a reliable person? It must be a person who has heard from reliable persons and the original source for this knowing turns out to be uh, what is called Veda. But he goes on from there because there's a lot of literature called Veda. And so he continues his process of elimination and eventually he comes to the conclusion that there is one particular text uh, which is most uh, suitable, most complete, most reliable. And, uh, well, he, Jiva Goswami would say perfect in terms of its purpose uh, and its, its power to give human beings uh, the ultimate aim of life and the process for realizing that aim. And that is a text called the Srimad Bhagavatam, or uh, it's also called the Bhagavata Purana. So there's a lot there that you just covered that we could go into deeper. Maybe yeah. we should spend a little bit of time on some of those <laughs> points. Um, so we're kind of crossing into sure. epistemology a little bit. So uh, I believe yeah. modern science is predicated on Anuman and Prajaksha. So it's all about observation and deduction or, you know, logic. And 
Right. Scientists do acknowledge the 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 limitation. That there's what's called the induction problem. That you know, the example um, I heard from a Christian scholar recently that's quite good is you know the the chicken gets fed every day at the same time. So it comes to the conclusion that every day at that same time it's going to get fed. But then one day it's dinner. So its conclusion was wrong. Um, so, there, you know, there's so many problems we could list with production and science kind of acknowledges them, but they say, yeah, but science has given us all this technology. But uh, of course, it can't give us knowledge about any kind of spiritual domain. So the claim is that we, we've got something unique. And then the other issue we could discuss is that like, okay, well, if production doesn't work, then, you know, you give me the Bhagavatam and I read it, but I'm trusting my senses to tell me what the words are on the page. So I guess Anuman yeah. and uh, Pradyaksha are serving Shabda. Yes. And Jiva Goswami addresses that issue uh, of how do I know that from my reading what's on the page that I will get it right. He actually addresses that. <laughs> he anticipates right. uh, that doubt. And he, sa he says, basically, language is clear enough uh, that we can understand, um, you know, straightforward language. And he gives an example. He gives a couple of uh, different Sanskrit words. And he says, everybody knows what these two words mean. Uh, there's no ambiguity. Um, of course, we may say, well, but I don't know Sanskrit. <laughs> And this gets into a bigger subject of how, how does language work? How do we get from language to, to understanding, to meaning? And that's uh, a major topic of a whole school of Indian philosophy called Mimamsa or Purva Mimamsa, and also of uh, another school called the Grammarians. They're just called the grammarians um, how similar are they but, to the the recent in the last century the philosophers who've picked apart language and you know they talk about correspondence theory and you know wittgenstein and all the sort yeah. of picking apart language is there much crossover i'm sure there is it's not something i've delved into myself um right. but i've i've heard it said from other scholars that um uh, that this early Sanskrit uh, discourse on language anticipates uh, the so-called linguistic turn in philosophy by about 2,000 years. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, <laughs> yeah, I haven't gone into the linguistics. But I'm, I'm sure there is a lot of, yeah. So what, what you just said is that uh, the limitations of our sensory perceptions uh, they're reliable when it comes to reading languages and basic things like that, you know, where, where they become unreliable is in terms of they, they can't give us absolute knowledge. So, you know, basically like the induction problem and so on. Yeah. Um, now, for our, you mentioned reading, uh, the tradition puts a lot more emphasis on hearing and hearing from the right source. Uh, it could be that just picking up the Srimad Bhagavatam on my own um, is not going to bring the, the, the de desired result. Um, there's, there's a whole, 
it's a complex of uh, of factors by which one pursues understanding. And this is summarized in a song, uh, in a Bengali song. Uh, the line goes, Sadhu Shastra Guru Vakya Hridoye Koryo Aikya Satatam Bashibo Prema Maje. Uh, the author, Narutam, uh, Narutam Das from uh, 17th century, is saying that I aspire for that realization which will be Aikya, which be, will be a singularity in my heart, not in my brain but in my heart. And that this will come from three sources. It's a kind of checks and balances uh, system he's referring to. One is sadhu, <clears throat> excuse me, sadhu, uh, which means uh, those who are, we can say, dedicating their lives to the practices of the culture of of bhakti, of devotion, um, following the tradition. Then Shastra, uh, referring to the texts, and Guru, referring to one's, uh, one's uh, ch chosen teacher, one to whom one has turned uh, and uh, become ded dedicated to uh, Traditionally and typically for a lifetime, not as in the university, you go for a course and then you're finished, um, but uh, for a lifetime. So sadhu, shastra, guru, vakya, the words that are coming from these three, chittete or hridaye, uh, koryo aikya, may they become altogether one single vision in my heart. And as a result, because we're looking for a result, we don't just want to do it as a hobby uh, or as an amusement. Satatam bashibo prema maje, that I may float in uh, the ocean of love of God. The whole purpose, it's understood by our tradition, is to realize um, what is called Krishna Prema, or love of God. And this I would put at, uh, because at some point we may be talking, as we talk about hermeneutics, about this so-called hermeneutic circle. Uh, I would, they generally don't talk about a center to the circle, and I would say there is a center, and the center is uh, the supreme being or God uh, and uh, the pursuit of that supreme being through what we in our tradition call bhakti or devotion. Um, so let's see, where were we? Um, so Prajaksha is able to give us reliable information enough to read a text. Um, logic, so right. most, most it's pretty common these days for philosophers and scientists and theologians to think that logic is um, 
something you can rest your hat on. But I believe Jiva Goswami argues that logic can be used by someone who's expat, expert at it to argue any conclusion. Is that accurate? Yes. Yes. Uh, not only Jiva Goswami, there are many uh, critics within the tradition, the wider Vedic tradition, who have um, have pointed this out, that logic can be used, as you said, logic can be used to argue anything you like. Uh, and that, uh, of course, is, and, and modern logicians, I think, will say the same thing, uh, that logic by itself does not necessarily bring us to truth. Uh, it, it, it has a certain limited capacity for, uh, for gaining knowledge. Right. But then we still use logic and sense perception, as we've discussed, because, you know, when you're interpreting a, a, yes. a passage from Scripture, if it's illogical, then you'll, you'll find an interpretation which makes logical sense. Yes. Um, yes and no. You, you, may, you may encounter something which doesn't make sense to us um, according to our ordinary experience. Before rejecting it, we want to um, allow ourselves to get a, a sort of knowledge which perhaps will come not through our reasoning and our perception directly, but may come from uh, from within, from a higher from a higher source. Let's put it that way. So I think in any worldview, you, you've got to at some point say this bit's inconceivable. So with with mm -hmm. the naturalistic worldview, that kind of happens at the Big Bang and the beginning of time and so on, and it also happens to some extent in every atom all the time, you know, how is it that electromagnetic fields are affecting electrons and vice versa? But we can't really understand, you know, if an electromagnetic field is a, a very different thing from an electron, yet these two things are interacting. And, uh, you know... Yes, as, as Stephen Barr was saying, I, I heard part of the conversation you oh, right, yeah, yeah. gave me the link. <laughs> yeah, yes. that, that's where I got that. <laughs> how, does, how does gravity work, right? How does gravity work? Yeah. You don't know how... Or spooky action at a distance. Quantum physics is, is pretty bizarre. So for scientists, they, they place the inconceivable in every single atom, basically. They, they put it in the creation everywhere. But uh, uh, the, mm -hmm. the Vaishnava paradigm, the Vedic picture, places the inconceivability arguably in a place where it's fit to put it in, in the absolute truth and in, in, in God. <laughs> and, and when we do that, then everything else becomes conceivable. So I, where I was going with that is, is like, we, you could say, oh, it's illogical, you know, like there's all these arguments that Christians use to argue for a beginning, and then they bring in the Kalam cosmological argument, and then there's like Grim Reaper paradoxes and back and forth. My take on it is that we have no experience of infinity, and our little brains are, are not capable of conceiving of infinity. So I, I don't hang much on arguments that deal in infinities because even if it seems illogical, I think we just can't trust our ability to reason about something like infinity. So that this is in relation to your point that sometimes we, we put logic to the side when we're interpreting scripture. Uh, yes, that would be one, one way. Of course, infinity, uh, limitedness, uh, one of the first 
definitions uh, that uh, Ramanuja Acharya, uh, another of the great, uh, he's also a kind of Thomas Aquinas from South India, uh, from uh, from what the eleventh century. Uh, one of the first definitions he gives of God is that he is achintya, he is inconceivable. It's not that he stops there and says, therefore, we cannot even begin to discuss. Um, rather, that's a starting point, and then he goes on to say, and uh, God has unli unlimited wonderful qualities. Um, and of course, uh, the idea is that there is also conceivability in his ultimate inconceivability. There are also conceivable elements which can be discussed, which can be communicated and uh, appreciated and celebrated. Right. Um, so the next question would be, um, well, one question, you know, well, since we're doing epistemology is, uh, would would you say we have internalism or externalism within the Vaishnava epistemology? Um, you know, I'm. I have to confess, I'm not sure about those terms. Okay, and, right. Uh, so or how you're e using externalism <laughs> uh, has a very technical meaning in epistemology. So internalism. Uh, so externalism is like uh, Alvin Plantinga's argument that you know, God could give us uh, a, a census divinatus, which is an ability to perceive God. And through that, we can know his existence. Uh, but it's externalism because, well, you could believe you have a census divinatus and you could believe you're sensing God, but it could be false. But if God does exist and he has given you the sense and you are perceiving God, then you do know that God exists. But it's externalism in the sense yeah. that when you're inside of the situation, you don't really know if you're living in the matrix or not, so to speak. Whereas internalism is you're directly aware or you're directly acquainted with your means of knowing. So it's kind of like having absolute knowledge, so to speak, as opposed to having hypothetical knowledge. Okay. Um, we might, <laughs> I might say a couple of things about that. One is that within, uh, within the tradition, and this is something again that, uh, Jiva Goswami speaks about there's avaidushya pratyaksha and there's vaidushya pratyaksha. <laughs> Gets a little technical, but um, it comes vaidushya. It comes from the word dosha. Dosha means fault, fault or fault, faulty, uh, and vaidushya uh, means faultless. And so it's understood that there is a possibility of having vaidusha pratyaksha or faultless perception. And that faultless perception is generally applied, or the possibility of it is generally applied to someone who is uh, extremely advanced in yoga whereby it's understood uh, here's a person who has uh, passed through all the many obstacles in uh, the focus of the mind and the senses uh, to be able to become utterly and completely absorbed in the object of attention 
which is called samadhi. And in that state, uh, such a person's perception is called vaidusha or faultless. Right. right. Now, a, another, but a, a broader picture may be helpful to bring in. And that is, uh, and this is very broad. This comes in the, the study of religion in general. Is we can say there are two general approaches to religion. One is that of the receptionist, and the other is that of the projectionist, where the re uh, the receptionist claims that there is some greater truth, some greater reality, uh, a being perhaps who is uh, actually existent, is out there, and reveals him or her or itself to human beings, um, possibly in various ways at various times. Uh, so that's the more religious understanding. And then the more skeptical understanding is that of the projectionist who says, no, no, um, we are, as a species, highly imaginative. And so we, in our sense of need for, uh, for there to be a supreme being or whatever, we project, we imagine, and then we project outward. Now, of course, whenever you look at two alternatives that are quite opposite from each other, for me, it raises the question, is there not some gray area? <laughs> and it seems to me there is a gray area in which there's uh, certainly a lot of projection and there is uh, something being received. There is reception. The reception may be faulty. Uh, it may be partial, but reception it may be nonetheless. Now, in the Bhagavata Purana, there's also a discussion about this uh, toward the end, in the late one of the late chapters uh, of the tenth book. It has twelve books altogether. The tenth book is the most by far the most extensive describing Krishna's appearance in this world. And at the end, there's near the end, there's a discussion about language and uh, whether it can communicate knowledge of uh, ultimate truth. And the basic conclusion is yes, if the ultimate truth wants to reveal himself through language, uh, taking the basic presupposition that that uh, supreme being is all-powerful, then it will not be difficult. It will not be, uh, it will be completely possible for him uh, to, uh, to reveal, to communicate through language. And so he does, and that becomes a justification uh, in particular for this uh, text, the Bhagavad. 
So, I mean, we should probably move on to the hermeneutics, but just quickly in response to that, the, the skeptic would probably say, you know, God could appear personally before me, and I would just think that, you know, there must have been something in the coffee. I, I must be going out of my mind. It must be a figment of my imagination, you know. So <laughs> I find that kind of extreme skepticism odd because I don't think those same people think that, you know, when their spouse comes home in the evening, like, oh, maybe they haven't actually come home. Maybe it's just a projection. Of, maybe I'm going bonkers. It's, <laughs> you know, when you actually are directly perceiving yeah. something, like, you know, you get people who are, you know, now there's like UFOs and that the, the government's talking about, you know, like there's people that get, get up, you know, there's reports of people being abducted. If, you, if you're a skeptic and you personally have that experience, I doubt you're going to be a skeptic much longer, right? Even if prior to that you thought, oh, even if it happened to me, I just think <laughs> I was imagining it. So... Uh, do you have, do you yeah. have anything to say on well, that? Well, there's there's many uh, there's many degrees of skepticism, and uh, I would say there is something called healthy skepticism, uh, and then there's, as you said, uh, there's extreme skepticism, and the extreme skepticism basically means you can't even get out of bed in the morning because you cannot trust yourself to do anything. Well, I think generally the, the extreme kept skepticism is never applied consistently. It's more of a, a tool used right. to reject things you want to reject and accept things you want to accept. Yeah. Yes. If you, if you dial your skepticism up and down throughout the day, then you can just believe whatever you want to believe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then on Shabda, uh, someone was asking in the comments, uh, how do we know um, Shabda or testimony is valid? Mm -hmm. So the the Vedic tradition uh, anticipates that question and and uh, it speaks of what's called apurusheyatva, another technical term. The word purusha means person and uh, purusheya means of personhood, um, and apurusheyatva, uh, non-personhood. The idea is that uh, Veda, as it's understood to be revelation, is not coming from any person. Now, there's different interpretations of this, and one of them, the more extreme interpretation, says it is not also coming from God. It is ever-existent. Um, it is coexistent with God, or you can say it is, well, it may be said to be a kind of aspect of God. And then in the course of history, um, which is understood to be cyclical in the tradition, it will be... Uh, the the expression is seen. It will be uh, specific passages will be seen um, by sages who are uh, understood to be so um, qualified or empowered to do the seeing. Uh, they're called rishis, and they simply uh, repeat or report. Uh, what they have seen. So this is sounding, and generally this is by speaking. So that sounds a bit like science, right? So you know, there's some wacky hypothesis that you know some scientist comes up with, and everybody's like, "Nah, that couldn't be," you know, surely not. And then they go and do a test, right? Like how Einstein proved um, the general theory of relativity, 
And they're like, oh my God, it has been proved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of scientists do the test, a couple of scientists repeat it, and they report to the world and the rest of us just accept it. This, this sounds exactly like yeah. what you just described with the sages and the Vedas. Well, yes, there there is also this point made that um, ultimately, how do we know things which are beyond beyond our senses and beyond our reason? The example is uh, the, the common example that's used in the literature is how do we know who is our mother? Um, we ask our mother; <laughs> she can tell us. <laughs> Or your mother can tell you, you are my son, you are my daughter. Um, and, you know, that's that's generally pretty conclusive. <laughs> so a similar, in, in a similar way, the Veda in general is uh, sometimes referred to as a mother, as, as the source, the mother, the female source of knowledge, where the guru... Uh, is equated or identified with the father. So the combination of the two are bringing about uh, realized knowledge. Right. So in the case of the mother, we, we, we have reasons to trust our mother, right? They're, they're this person, they have good qualities, they care for us, they're always around. It's like, there's no reason for me to mm-hmm. think this person would lie to me and there's no reason for me to think this person would be mistaken. Uh, so right. what what would the equivalent of that be for the sages? Uh, the equivalent of that for the sages would be our trust in the teachings through the experience that we have. Ultimately, it is a fact that we come uh, down to uh, personal experience. So our experience of their teachings our application in our lives uh, of their teachings. and But that application implies also some initial faith. And it's been pointed out by, um, I think, several people that uh, thinking about any kind of knowledge, um, an initial principle prior to knowledge is some sort of faith. So the tradition says like that also. In fact, um, the uncle of Jiva Goswami was Rupa Goswami. He said, Adao Shraddha, in the beginning, there must be faith. It may be very little faith. It may be a faith which says, well, let me see if there's something to this. So So it may be faith mixed with a lot of skepticism but nonetheless, some kind of willingness that let me see, let me see if this works. Right. So the, the word faith gets debated and what it means between theist and atheist and uh, especially particularly, yeah. you know, the Greek word is pistis and they argue about what was meant by it. So could you give a definition of faith? Um, okay. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue in Bengali. Shraddha shabde vishvaskahe. There it is. Shraddha Shabde Vishwas Kahe Sudridhanis Choi Krishna Bhakti Koile Sarva Karma Kritahoi. It's a definition in a scripture called Chaitanya Charitamrita of the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, uh, which is telling the life and teachings of Sri Chaitanya. 
He says this, uh, or the author, Krishnadas Kaviraj, says, Shraddha, uh, this word Shraddha, Vishvas Kahe, um, he uses another word for faith, Vishvasa, Sudridha Nischoy, very strong conviction. Uh, what is that conviction? Krishna Bhakti Koile, that if I engage, if I do Koile, Krishna Bhakti, the practices uh, of of bhakti of devotion and these there's an an elaborate discussion what that means krishna bhakti koile sarva karma krita hoy then all karma all necessary duty all activity that i might think i should do uh, to become happy to become successful uh, in life all of that is done krita hoy so that would be one way of defining in in the um, broadly speaking Indian tradition, Shraddha has very much to do with uh, a sense that if I do X, I will get Y result. Right. So maybe we can compare this to self-help advice or uh, get rich advice. So. You know, and a young entrepreneur <laughs> is working extremely hard, taking on great difficulty and taking great risk in order to become a, a multimillionaire one day. And they're just doing that based on faith. There's no guarantee that it's going to happen. They've seen other people do it and succeed, but that doesn't mean they're going to mm -hmm. do it and succeed. And similarly, we can look at other people who, I mean, I think a key element here is you see somebody who has something you want. So you know, for a lot of people in the early days, that was Prabhupada. They, they yeah. saw Prabhupada and he has this, this love of God, this special state of consciousness, this special kind of bliss, you know, if, if we can try to use an English word, but it falls short. Um, and this is what I want. And therefore, I have faith that by following his instructions, I will get that thing. Yes, I think that's important. And that points to uh, the... Um, this element that I mentioned uh, in terms of epistemology, the sadhu and the guru, uh, both of them are there uh, as essential components along with Shastra or uh, the revealed text. And you could say that, uh, to take another analogy, perhaps uh, that of cooking, uh, that you know, you look at a recipe book, and it's giving a process how to make, how to bake a cake or how to prepare a certain kind of soup. There's so many ingredients and there's a process and you follow the, the process and you, you use the ingredients and you use them in the right proportions and so on. And then uh, there's a good possibility that you're going to have the resulting uh, food preparation that that you hoped for. So, in a similar way, the practice of bhakti it's understood. If you uh, follow these procedures, if you if you do what is favorable and if you avoid what is not favorable, uh, then in course of time, uh, a positive result will come. And. Um, as you said, seeing others who appear to have uh, reached that state, 
um, becomes a very foundational source of uh, of faith. That's true. So the skeptic might say here we're kind of divorcing ontology from uh, psychological benefits. So just because you practice bhakti and you get a special kind of bliss, it doesn't mean you know Krishna and Goloka plays a flute and sports with the cowherd cowherd boys and the cows, and you can go there. It just means you can get a nice state of consciousness in this world. And one thing we could say back to that is, you know, it, we're not. It's not so much that bhakti is promising something that you need to leave this body in order to attain. There's actually the state of consciousness of bhakti, which, you know, this, the, the pure devotee can have in this material world in the same body. That's what the goal is. So if, if you want that goal, then you can achieve that and you can see other people who've achieved it. So it's not so much that we need to worry about the ontology. And from another element, it's like, well, even if the ontology is true, if you see somebody in that state of consciousness that is experiencing that kind of bliss and you don't want that, then you won't be happy in the spiritual world. So it doesn't really matter whether you believe in it or not. You go and chase whatever you think is going to make you happy. And when you're tired of that, then you can come and look into bhakti if you're interested. <laughs> yes. Also, bhakti is not about, uh, it's not just about feeling good, um, because we understand from, just from Bhagavad Gita, which is a kind of uh, ABCs, we could say, of this in preparation for the Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, this world is described in not so glowing terms as Dukalayam and Ashashvatam. Uh, it's a place of, uh, of suffering, and it is temporary. And that's something which any, reason, any somewhat reasonable person will be able to agree with. Anyone who has been a little thoughtful may recognize, oh yes, I have experienced suffering, and I do see that uh, my life is temporary. <laughs> and, and furthermore, it's not about some superficial sort of happiness, because, as again is described in Bhagavad Gita, this world uh, is a place of, uh, of the dualities of happiness and distress. And that is not changed by the practice of bhakti. Um, we never claim that there will become freedom from um, happiness and distress. Rather, what Krishna tells Arjuna, <laughs> your name, <laughs> the original Arjuna, uh, is Shitoshna Sukadukada Agama Apaina Anitya uh, you should you should learn to tolerate uh, these dualities of the comings and goings of you know the heat and the cold, the happiness and the distress, the success, the failures. So you mentioned the business person who's looking for uh, success and pursuing it with some kind of faith in a self-help um, business book, whatever. Um, we're talking on a different level because we're understanding, uh, talking to the businessman, you might be successful 
you might fail. Uh, what are you going to do if you fail? What's going to be your mentality if you fail? Uh, and Krishna is urging us to rise above the success, the failure, etc., cetera, uh, by recognizing our, our identity beyond the, on, the ontology, uh, the ontological existence, which is unaffected by these changes. So that's kind of lesson one in Bhagavad Gita. There will be all of these changes. And we can, with a certain reasoning, recognize that there's something beyond, something of ourselves, uh, which is beyond these. And that's where, you know, Krishna gives, actually just before uh, speaking about tolerance, he speaks about our changing bodies. You know, the body is growing, it's changing, it's dwindling over time. Uh, but the sense of I, the self, is not changing. So what is that that is not changing? That is uh, the sort of essential, and that's the beginning step uh, in, in self-realization. So we've we've done a little bit on epistemology and uh, a little a little bit on what bhakti is. So now maybe we can get back yeah. to hermeneutics. So uh, back to hermeneutics with regards to selecting which scripture we take, we give priority to. Um, why the Vedas rather than the Quran or you know the the Buddhist literature or the Bible? Would be one question. Well. You know, this can be, um, this can, uh, let me put it this way, as my guru, you mentioned Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada put it, any scripture, um, and he was being very inclusive here, any scripture which will uh, lead us, which will help us to reach the goal, uh, which we understand is love of God, is good. And uh, if to the and, and people are becoming inspired and are leading um, what we would say is devotional lives, very so many people are inspired by the scriptures that you mentioned. And so um, these certainly have validity. Otherwise, why would it be that so many millions, even billions of people are, in fact, inspired by them? So that still leaves the question, why? So then why the Veda? Well, several reasons. Um, here I would maybe speak from the personal side. Having done a certain amount of study over years, first of all, as a child, and then in later years uh, as a student of Christian literature, much of which I have found uh, very inspiring. Um, I've, it has left me also with some questions uh, which I felt were perhaps more comprehensively elaborated in the Vedic literature. 
Now, I want to say something else about the, the word Veda. Um, we, I, I've said this in the beginning, Veda means knowledge, literally. And it can be taken in a narrower sense or in a broader sense. If we take in the narrower sense, then we're talking about uh, a set of texts in a particular language, Sanskrit language, um, which have a certain history. There's a lot of debate about that history. We can also uh, take Veda in a broader sense and say that any, any literature uh, which is bringing us higher knowledge of of the human purpose of life, which is giving us higher knowledge of the existence of a supreme being, uh, of of the supreme personality, of the supreme we say personality of Godhead, um, any and which is giving a process to cultivate and realize our purpose. Uh, could also or can be included in this broader sense of, of Veda. Right, so that's that's a nice and, inclusive point. We we can accept, respect other scriptures. They clearly offer benefit. And then we can define Veda as, you know, something coming from India, or we can define Veda as knowledge anywhere it happens to be found. Sorry, I cut you off. Continue. Yeah. No, that that's basically it. What I what I meant to say, I think. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I I like the inclusivist point and the the quote from Prabhupada about uh, how you know it, these other religions have benefit if done properly. I'm I'm currently working on a video script on the name holy name controversy in Russia and the uh, leading up to the Soviet Revolution around 1913. And it's very clear that oh. many of these monks, through the chanting of the Jesus prayer, which they considered to be God himself and the form of the name, that they were getting immense, you know, spiritual realization. So it's, you know, when you actually was, study these other religions, it's pretty hard to have an exclusivist bent. There was a book um, I came across some years ago on that subject, that controversy. And as I remember, it was written by a mathematician. Um, and it was, all I remember is that it was, um, it was written by a mathematician and it was published by Harvard University Press. And uh, I think I read the introduction to it. It was quite fascinating. Yeah, it's very fascinating. Yeah, they, they make some arguments that, the, that God being identical with his name has actually given mathematical insights and it, it's relevant for points about math. Uh, um, okay. So, so there's uh, Saurav in the comments is saying, every scripture claims universalism and eternality of their concepts. And if we accept them as true, then why the difference on the conceptions of God? Yes, indeed. Why, why indeed? Um, there may be different ways of approaching this. This has been a subject of discussion in the Christian tradition uh, for a long time. How should Christians uh, relate to other religions? 
And uh, I don't know who it was, uh, which Christian theologian, I don't remember, who identified sort of three main categories of approaches. One, that of the inclusivist, uh, that of the exclusivist, and that of the pluralist. And the inclusivist is one who says that um, I, as a whatever, fill in the blank, as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a particular type of Christian or Muslim or particular, or myself as a Gaudiya Vaishnava, when I look at um, so-called other religious traditions and their descriptions uh, of God and their understandings of uh, the practices that I should follow, I can see how all of these can be included within uh, the broader sphere uh, of my understanding. So it's like saying my religion's true and other religions are true in as much as they converge on my religion. And I can see that other religions do converge with my religion, with yes. the truth that comes from my religion in significant ways. And then exclusivism yes, says... you could put it like that. My religion's true and everyone else is wrong. And then yes, that's pluralism. A, that's a nice, uh, simple, uh, perhaps New Zealand style <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> I try to do the popular level stuff and make it accessible. So I'm thinking of how to explain these things in simple ways. And then pluralism yeah. would be many religions are true, even if they contradict one another. There, yes, many religions are true, even if they conflict with one another, or the conflict is my own limited perception of them, uh, which may be combined with a limited perception or reception of the different religious traditions. Right. So everybody's climbing the mountain from different sides. Nobody's reached the top. Uh, yeah. But then we can say that, you know, like give a kind of explanation of how the differences arose, that d different calibers of people with different interests and different uh, vices exist in different parts of the world. So God would send teachings and teachers to those people who were, you know, teaching according to their level. And then some degree of misunderstanding may have gone on over the ages to where we have a whole, uh, you know, panoply of religions, which... Uh, yeah, are, are, you know, like abridged so, teachings, which may be to some extent misunderstood, but there's still one underlying spiritual truth and one underlying origin. Yes. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna uh, expresses what I think is a very comprehensive principle is that God reciprocates with everyone uh, according to the way and the extent to which uh, one approaches God. He says, as they approach me, I reciprocate with them. So it's, uh, in many respects, he's saying the initiative has to be with us. But however we approach, and that means also the hardcore atheist, uh, the, the so-called new atheist, uh, the born-again atheist, 
God is reciprocating with them as well by hiding. <laughs> says, you don't want right. to believe in me. Fine, I'm not going to, why should I disturb you? <laughs> yeah, right. But then my guru, Srila Prabhupada, used to say, uh, for, for the atheist, God comes in the form of death. Right. Uh, nobody can avoid death. Death will come. And even if in the last breath one is saying there's no God, uh, then God will still take one in the form of death. <laughs> so there's this quote, um, God is too big for just one religion, which kind of gets at the idea of God reciprocating with different types of people in ways like uh, yes. we have this term God is polymorphic and you know, so he'll he'll appear in ways suitable to the, the different devotees. You know, so for a Muslim, you know, when they have spiritual experiences, they see green, which is a sacred color for them, and so on. And atheist yeah. uses an argument as against the existence of God because all these religions are contradictory. But it could be that God is just allowing the different religions to have you know different misunderstandings. But uh, the goal is not to have an accurate ontological understanding in every detail all the time. The goal is to get the result. And to do that, then maybe understanding things in a slightly different way, which may be a little inaccurate, may be beneficial. Yeah, okay. That's a nice way to put it. I, I would also say, um, and this is something which maybe not all my colleagues would agree with, but to your point that God is uh, too big to be contained by any one religion, I would say uh, that I, as a practicing Gaudiya Vaishnava, feel very much um, open to be enriched um, by other traditions. And this is, this is the basis for me uh, of uh, appreciating the, the value of interreligious dialogue and also of what my doctoral supervisor, uh, who is a Christian theologian, a comparativist Christian theologian, uh, Francis Clooney, now at Harvard, uh, has, um, has developed to a great extent, and that is comparative theology. Uh, it's a whole field now of of academic study, comparative theology. Is that different from comparative in which for religion? Him, comparative religion, but comparative theology is it's another it's another area. It's it's more folk it's comparative religion is sort of viewing religion from the outside. Religion is, and the study of religion as an academic study is, uh, in a sense, pursuing the study of religion generally as an outsider from any particular uh, religious tradition. Whereas theology is taking seriously uh, and uh, typically practicing uh, based on on a theological tradition, and now there has been developing. Well, you mentioned there's comparative religions, and that's that's a whole field which it's become it's been popular, and then it lost popularity, and it's come back. 
and some people, scholars of religion, reject it, and some embrace it. But now there's comparative theology in which uh, we look very carefully at uh, particular expressions of uh, theological understanding in different traditions and see how we can relate these with understandings in other traditions uh, and how to make such comparisons meaningful and so on. It becomes very... Um, very refined practice. But my point, and this is a, a sort of general principle which I learned from uh, Professor Clooney, is we, we become very familiar uh, with, the, with the style of language, the style of expression, the style of thinking within our own tradition, from our own texts, which we identify with as our own. If we, if we break out of that and sort of venture over to listen um, as openly as we possibly can to an expression from another tradition, we may find, if we allow ourselves um, to be enriched by what we hear in such a way that when we come back to our own tradition, we look with fresh eyes at what we, what we generally hear, or hear with fresh ears what we generally are accustomed to hearing. Now, typically, we jump on differences because we live in a competitive world uh, in which everyone thinks, you know, your religion, my religion. Um, and so we, <laughs> we, t we tend to fasten on those differences and lose track, possibly, of the bigger vision that's being given as as you said, God may be bigger than can be contained in any one tradition. Opening up to a bigger vision of God may be possible with a certain amount of skill and uh, a lot of patience and possibly some guidance from others um, by exploring texts from another tradition, other texts, but also. Um, other forms of expression. Take, for example, uh, just a few days ago, I was listening to a recording online, it was on YouTube, of um, Handel's Messiah. Um, I've heard it before many years, so many years ago, but I was appreciating sort of with fresh ears uh, this performance of Handel's Messiah. And I just find it so inspiring. It's so powerful. And I, I, I reflect on what kind of a person was, I forget his first name, was he Friedrich Handel? I don't remember. <laughs> They're usually Friedrich. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
George Handel? I don't know. <laughs> Georg. So, <laughs> uh, but I just, it, it, and what it inspires is a sense of wonder. In me, it inspires a sense of wonder and a sense of uh, what must be that vision. George Frederick uh, which, Handel. Okay. Georg Friedrich. I was right. I just got them in the wrong <laughs> order. <laughs> so I don't know if that, I'm a little bit on a rant. I don't know if yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, sense. I've been having a similar experience studying the, the Emir Slapsi, I think is how you say it, which is the Russian name for the name glorifiers in Russia and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh -huh. And you, you study their teachings and it's like, this is right out of the Ten Offenses of the Holy Name, and this is right out of Shikshastakam. Like, oh, yeah. it doesn't have, it's not like as, as comprehensive, I'd say, but the de depth of realization they have on some of these points is, goes beyond what your average Hare Krishna devotee has. Um, at least yeah. the ones I was reading. Yeah. It's pretty phenomenal. So um, we're at, we're gone on maybe 80 minutes now or something, so maybe we can try to get to hermeneutics, which is, you know, when you have a passage of Scripture... <laughs> and you're reading it, yeah. how do you ensure that you're getting the correct meaning? So uh, there's the direct meaning and there's the indirect meaning and, you know, there's various ways to know, you know, tools that might be used. And uh, within the Christian tradition, which we're going to be having a, a dialogue with Keith Ward, who's a top-level Christian scholar on comparative religion, or maybe we'll be doing comparative theology, um, hermeneutics. And who was, and who was my... Uh, my mentor for uh, my first degree at Oxford, so I know him quite well. <laughs> it's very serendipitous. Hey? I just, I just asked a Christian scholar, I know who's a good Christian for hermeneutics, and he told me two names, and I emailed one of them, and he agreed to come on, and he happens to have been one of your professors at Oxford University, and also be a very high caliber scholar from what I've heard about him. So I'm looking forward to that. So, oh yes. Um, so the question with other religions would be, I, quite a number of the hermeneutic tools employed within our tradition will also be found in Christianity, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So maybe. I would think so, yeah. Um, so I'll let you um, go where you want to with explaining some hermeneutic tools. Um, okay, for that, um, I'm going to, take reference a little bit from a project which I was somewhat tangentially involved with um, in developing a course for, um, for people in our own tradition because problems have come up in the course of uh, in recent years. Um, people reading texts and saying, how am I supposed to understand this, and so on. Um, or people using text to argue for their bigotry. Yeah, people also arguing for their bigotry. That's also... <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, don't get me started. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, we came up with... Uh, we means uh, a group of of myself and some colleagues colleagues uh, in my tradition. It's been over a process of about three years, actually. We came up with a course in which we identified forty 
tools, you use the word tools, so we have 40 specific tools, um, but before we have the tools, we have 24 principles upon which uh, the tools are based. And then the principles are based again on what we're calling qualities, uh, of which there are six. Well, each one of these six is actually two, so we could say 12. But just very briefly, this, uh, the six qualities are first, humility and service mood, second, fidelity to text and tradition, third, discerning search for truth, fourth, an honest and authentic conversation, fifth, openness to change and transformation, and sixth, uh, benevolence and generosity. Now, each of those are you know, very broad terms, and they're not some, none of them are measurable, um, but they give a certain direction, a certain uh, sense, a certain ethos in which the practice of Vedic hermeneutics, as we understand it, uh, can be effectively done. Right, so that's kind um, of like a methodology. Like these are the things that you, the qualities you need to bring to the table if you're going to successfully, uh, correctly understand scripture. And then the hermeneutic tools, you know, in terms of like the logic and the grammar and when to take the direct meaning and when the indirect meaning would be things that you employ from that space. Well, okay, depends how you want to use the word methodology. I would prefer the word ethos. Okay, yeah, that, and that's better, yeah. May, and maybe the whole process, uh, which begins with identifying qualities and then going to principles and then to tools, that entire thing um, I would call methodology. Oh, okay, right. So I was distinguishing between ethos and tools just then. Right. Okay, let's <laughs> use methodology. Yeah. So. And then I won't go through all the principles, um, but we start with uh, Sri Krishna is the object, purpose, and ultimate goal of all Shastric knowledge. So for any now, obviously, are, someone from yeah, sorry, I was going to say that someone from outside the tradition is going to say, "Well, that doesn't work for me," um, but one might uh, substitute. For, for Sri Krishna, one may substitute, you know, Yahweh uh, or some other name of God. We understand there are many names of God uh, in the Islamic tradition. There are 99 uh, names of God celebrated and so on. Um, and then we go from there, for example, we go into the subject of, um, of pramana, of epistemology, that we've discussed already quite a bit. And then we talk about um, one of the principles is hierarchies are present within Shastra and between Shastra. Now, the word Shastra won't be familiar. Uh, it just means something like sacred text. 
And we understand uh, there are hierarchies. Uh, and I talked about that also, where we concluded in our own Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition. And there are other Vaishnava traditions which also uh, put the Srimad Bhagavata Purana uh, on the top of the list as most important, they prioritize. Um, but just recognizing that there are hierarchies helps us. So if we read something in one text, um, let's take the Manu Samhita. Manu Samhita is a text which deals with sort of legal matters, and it, it gives certain sorts of rules. Um, it, it also talks about punishment uh, for someone who has done something wrong. And it gives uh, varieties of punishment according to position in uh, the society. And when we look at that, we shrink from it and say, what is this? You are giving a minimum punishment to someone who is um, considered uh, higher in the social, in a social hierarchy, and you're giving a stronger punishment to someone lower. What is this about? Because we have a very different understanding of uh, of of social ranking in our modern. We aspire for some kind of egalitarian uh, ethos. We are very far from it. Um, so we may look at that quote and say, so, someone who is more narrow and simple-minded will say, well, here it is. It's in Shastra. We have to follow this. But no, it's not that simple. What is the position of this particular text, the Manu Samhita, in relation to other texts? That we have to see. So that would be a principle of hermeneutics. Uh, one principle, which I spent a fair amount of time elaborating on, because we have, um, we've expanded on each of these uh, principles, um, <clears throat> was, uh, it's called insight emerges through apt dialogue and through mediation, resolution, or reconciliation of paradox, apparent contradiction, and multiple views. In other words, it's not going to be always the case that uh, that sacred text gives us a clear black and white answer to what is and what is not, or what should be done and should not be done. Um, there's a term, parokshavada, uh, which means indirect speech. Sometimes there are teachings which are not clear, and they can be said to be intentionally not clear. <laughs> and we want to say, why would anything be intentionally not clear? And the answer is because we are being called upon to use our 
intelligence, our experience uh, in this world uh, to apply our uh, understanding to whatever it is that's being said. So that's like a teaching technique, which is pretty common. You, you get the student to figure it out for themselves and then they really learn it. Yeah. Like when I did my electrical yes. apprenticeship, I was pretty much put working by myself very early on because of the dynamics of the company I worked for. But it meant that I learned right. really quickly, whereas if I just could like ask somebody every five minutes how to do something and what to do next, yeah. I wouldn't have learned nearly as fast. Exactly. Now, one of the principles which I especially like um, that we articulated is, is this. The highest truth aims at the welfare of all. So if we're looking for the highest truth, one way of judging, are we getting there, is, is this benefiting everyone? So none of that hypothetical, we're, we're harming them now, but saving them from eternal damnation in some hypothetical future. Uh, no, that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's very problematic. Yeah, it's worth mentioning. <laughs> that kind of reason. Yeah. So, and then uh, that was just two or three examples from our principles. And then, uh, I'll give a few samples from our tools. As I mentioned, there are 40 of these tools. The first one is to ask ourselves the question, how does this statement or series of statements point toward Krishna? Because if you remember, the first of the principles was uh, Sri Krishna is the object the purpose and ultimate goal of all Shastric knowledge. So then we can ask, how does this point to Krishna? Or does it? If it doesn't, or if I don't see how it does, then um, I need some more help. Then uh, considering of the pramanas or the uh, epistemological tools Understanding how they are being used is important. Um, identifying the genre of text, uh, we understand there are many different genres of uh, Vedic literature. There are three general categories, and I mentioned we consider the Bhagavata Purana as the highest, one reason being that it includes all three uh, genres. Uh, genre being said in the sense of what, what sort of way is teaching being given. And the first of these is called Prabhu or Master. It is as a master is, is uh, teaching a servant. Basically, by command, um, do like this, and there's a whole, the whole, yeah, the the core of one whole school of Vedic philosophy, Mimamsa, is very much about identifying those commands, and then understanding the commands, and then following them. That's the whole Mimamsa school. 
the second principle is that of Mitra. Mitra means friend. Uh, we learn things from friends. Friends are our well-wishers, and they can tell us some things which the master will not be able to communicate to us uh, because we have a certain relationship to the friend that is different from that to the master. Uh, uh, and then the third uh the third type uh, or genre or way of teaching is that of a lover. It's the most intimate relationship, and based on that relationship, another kind or another quality of teaching uh, can come. So this particular tool says, okay, you've got a statement here. What kind of a statement is this in terms of genre? Uh, and then this will be uh, applied together with other other tools, one of which is, and this applies in, in any hermeneutic tradition, what's the context? What has been said prior to this and what has been uh, stated after whatever it is that I am hearing or reading? What is the bigger picture? What's, what's the broader message? Is this a, uh, what's being spoken, is this a principle or is this a detail? And if it's a principle, then it's something which uh, would be uh, to be kept as it is um, without change. If it's a detail, it's subject to change. It's subject to change because we are living in a world of change. I was wanting to do... So those would be a few examples. I was wanting to do a little bit more on why the Bhagavatam, I forgot to bring it back up earlier. So you mentioned that it's because it's got these three different genres all inside of it. Are there other scriptures in the Vedic canon that also fit that category? Um, that would include all three of these? Yeah. Probably to some extent. Um, this is mentioned uh, with respect to the Bhagavatam as part of a eulogy of the Bhagavatam. So it's, it's part of uh, the effort to uh, underline why it is that the Vaishnavas will take the Bhagavatam as uh, most essential. But we could look, for example, at the uh, at the Ramayana. The Ramayana is an extremely popular text. Uh, it's it's uh, generally, as a genre, it's generally referred to in Western language as epic, epic poetry. Um, it's telling a story, a very wonderful story, which is considered uh, not as just a fantasy story, but as, uh, as very ancient history. And there are a lot of teachings, and uh, these teachings are coming through the narrative. So we don't get any, um, we don't get any direct, um, what's the word? imperatives, commands, do like this, don't do like that, that, that would, 
not be found uh, in in the Ramayana, but there would be many uh, portions of narrative which then would be taken by Vaishnavas to say, you see, here is an example from the behavior of Rama or uh, from a statement of Rama or from Sita, there is something for us to derive as uh, support for a particular uh, understanding. Um, then there's Dharma Shastra. I mentioned the uh, Manu Samhita, which is usually the one put forward as the most important of several different texts. The word Dharma uh, is, is uh, famously difficult to translate. It's often translated simply as religion. Um, it can also mean duty. I find it useful, though, to also think of it as ethics. Um, but it, but Dharma Shastra tends to be very much in the form of uh, do this and don't do that, um, prescriptive text. Um, but the term Dharma is more deeply about understanding identity, I, identity which is beyond superficial appearance. So uh, it's emphasized that we as living beings are of a certain dharma and that or our dharma, which does not change uh, whatever we may think or not think in whatever condition we are, we are eternally servant. We are servant of God. That is, that is our uh, ontology, ontological position. And based on that understanding, then comes the question, okay, if I'm a servant, uh, what am I supposed to do? And that will depend on so many factors. What kind of uh, capabilities do I have? Uh, what sort of mentality do I have? And so Dharma Shastra deals uh, quite extensively with that subject, how to, how to make the best, to put it in a kind of simple way, but one that, uh, again, Srila Prabhupada used to like to say, how to make the best use of a bad bargain. <laughs> the bad bargain is uh, this temporary body uh, which is subject to disease, uh, which is subject to so many kinds of disturbance. This is our um, bad bargain, but it's a good bargain in the sense that we can use it in uh, developing our God consciousness. So how does that... How to make the best use of it, that is very much what Shastra is about. How does that relate to why Bhagavatam? Why Bhagavatam? Because the Bhagavatam is giving us in a very comprehensive way and a very, I would say, relishable way, um, 
all that one would possibly need to know for that purpose. And the Manusamhita uh, doesn't. The, the Manusamhita is, no. The Manusamhita, much of the Manusamhita is quoted in the Bhagavatam. One of the functions of the Bhagavatam is that it's summarizing from other earlier texts. And as one of the earlier uh, uh, preceptors, Bhaktivinoda Thakur explains, it's for practical purpose. You don't have to carry a library around with you. You just have one text, the Bhagavata Purana. Uh, so it's we can say it's inclusive of um, there are many direct quotes from the Manusamhita in the Bhagavatam, but it's extracting from uh, other texts in order to keep the focus on the goal, whereas on the goal of Krishna Prema, of love of God, whereas so many other texts, like the Manusamhita, like the, um, I haven't mentioned the uh, Mahabharata have other other um, preliminary goals. It's generally understood there are four categories of human aim, purusha artha. Uh, the first I've mentioned is dharma, uh, which has to do with it has to do with piety, with uh, right uh, getting right with fellow human beings, with society, uh, and more broadly with the environment, which is something very much uh, of concern nowadays. Arta uh, is turning more to selfish interest. I need to maintain myself. I need to feed myself, how to do it. So arta uh, means earning, it means value. Uh, it means profit. So we are pursuing dharma, we are pursuing artha. We also pursue what is called kama, uh, which is to be distinguished from karma. Karma means action. Kama means desire. We all have desire to satisfy our senses. Both our physical senses and the mind is included uh, in this tradition as one of the senses. So we like to watch movies. We, you know, want to uh, read stories about other people. A lot of this has to do with kama. And the fourth of these four uh, general pursuits is is mukti, also called moksha which means liberation. And here the notion is of a permanent solution to what's understood in Vedic literature to be, excuse me, a problem. And the problem is that we all have to die and we don't want to die. And <clears throat> not only that, but we understand we will be reborn and we don't know where we're going to be reborn, and it may not be a it may not be a pleasant uh, situation of rebirth. So Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha these are the general goals which much of Vedic literature 
uh, is concerned with. And in contrast to this, the Srimad Bhagavatam is concerned with what's called uh, the fifth goal, which is prema. And it's setting aside, it's not ignoring the other goals, but it's setting aside or it's putting into perspective uh, these, uh, these other, the first four goals. So in that, in, in that respect, the Bhagavatam is very much favored by our tradition. So a lot of that, argue, argue, um, what you just explained was that we accept the Bhagavatam, we give priority to the Bhagavatam because of the content of the Bhagavatam, and you explained the nature of the content of the Bhagavatam and how it, it, it summarizes other scriptures. At, um, it contains all three genres, and its primary focus is, I mean, we, perhaps we could say Bhagavat Dharma, and you, you, you called it, you said Prema. Um, yes. So the other question would be, what, what about, you know, from a, you know, taking passages within the text themselves to work it out. For example, uh, you know, there's, t there's those verses in the uh, Shiva Purana and some in the Padma Purana, I think, which, which mentioned that Shankaracharya came to uh, give a covered meaning of the Vedas. Uh, so mm. that's one hermeneutic we can apply. Okay, somebody might say that's interpolated. I don't know if there's any evidence for that. Evidence for interpolation would look like the Sanskrit being written in a way which doesn't match the way the rest of it's written. I'm not sure if there's any evidence for that. Are you aware of any? <laughs> it's not something I've gotten right, into, okay. but it wouldn't it wouldn't be so difficult to interpolate. And uh, you know, Sanskrit um, is. You know, it's possible to write Sanskrit in, in such a way that it would, um, it could fit, so to say, uh, whatever has been er written earlier. Well, um, but I want to say also, because you mentioned uh, two Puranas, the nature of the Puranas in general is that they're highly fluid. And this is where the Bhagavata Purana also is different because of its commentarial tradition. Um, you mentioned the Padma Purana and uh, which? The Skanda? Uh, Shiva Purana, I think it's called. Shiva, the Shiva Purana. Uh, the, whenever we say, oh, it's in the Padma Purana, the first question has to be, right, which edition? Where? <laughs> uh, which, which, which manuscript? But we're glorifying the Bhagavad uh, Purana. This is my point, and this was one of the reasons that Jiva Goswami said we take the Bhagavata Purana because it's most, uh, it's of all the Puranas, it is extremely stable. Yeah. Stable meaning we don't uh, find interpolation or extraction uh, because, why? Because there has been a commentary on the Bhagavata by a certain uh, sage scholar from uh, the 14th to 15th century named Sridhar, Sridhar Swami. And he commented every single verse of what traditionally is called 18,000 verse text. Uh, what we have presently is 14,200 and something. As I said, relatively <laughs> stable. 
So all of what we have today has been commented by him. And so everyone since him accepts, okay, that's the Bhagavatam. And anyone wants to add something, if you then go and look at what Sridhar Swami has, you can quickly say, no, can't be right because Sridhar Swami didn't comment. Right. So that that's, I was going to make that point. I've heard it from Radhika Raman Prabhu that Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam uh, these, these, they, there's a certain nature of the Sanskrit that the meter and the poetic form where when you translate it, if you make a mistake, you mess up the poetry and it becomes obvious, but also like, especially with Bhagavad Gita, people would chant these, memorize them, sing them. Uh, you know, they were in the hearts of people for centuries. So uh, if somebody did right. make a mistake, it would be detected. Whereas, so, you know, the Padma Purana, someone does a, a transcription cause it was just written out by hand for so many years and they make a mistake, they get something wrong. Is yes. Every, every usually uh, around every April first, you'll find some message somewhere on uh, you know Facebook that somebody has discovered the nineteenth chapter to the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we, one reason to accept them is because we know this is the original form of the scripture or at least extremely cl close. Whereas with the other Vedas, other, you know, uh, Vedic literature, we can't be so sure of that. Yeah. Again, Jiva Goswami says that what we have of the original um, Vedic Samhitas is, is a very small, small percentage of the total, um, which he says is available not on this planet. He refers right. to other realms in the universe. <laughs> right. So, so that's one reason. Uh, another point I was going to make. So, I, I mentioned those statements in Padma Purana, and I mentioned somebody could throw shade on their uh, validity. Uh, but I think of all the Vedic scriptures, uh, the Bhagavatam is the one that glorifies itself more than any other. Would that be accurate? I wouldn't know because I haven't gone through all Vedic scriptures. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, to to our knowledge, we but, can say that to my, I mean, at least to my limited knowledge, I, I've only really read Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam. So, <laughs> so uh, one thing we find in the Bhagavatam near the beginning in the first book, uh, chapter seven, I'm mentioning this because I've just gone through a, uh, a study of the Tattva Sandarbha, this first section of Jiva Goswami's work, um, is a very short, it's a series of five, five verses uh, describing the samadhi, the experience of Vyasa, Vyasa Deva. Vyasa is credited as the compiler of and the Bhagavata, and and it's it's a paradox because within the text, he who is said to have compiled the text is being described at a later date um, by Sutta Sutta Goswami. So in that in those five verses, uh, it's mentioning what he saw and the emphasis Jiva Goswami 
makes when he analyzes and he elaborates for the remainder of the, um, the practically the most of the Tattva Sandarbha, uh, he's elaborating on these five verses, is that Vyasa saw, he's, this is what he saw. What did he see? Bhakti Yogena Manasi Samyat Pranihite Amale Apashat Purusham Purnam Mayam Chayat Apashrayam. He saw the Supreme uh, Purusha, the Supreme Person, Purusham Purnam, and he saw Maya. He saw the energy of the Supreme Person. And then he saw the Jiva, the Jivas, that's us, living beings who are subordinate to and who are under the influence of the energy of the Lord, Maya. And so all of this elaborates, and then Jiva Goswami says, in effect, in these five verses, you have the entire philosophy and theology of the Bhagavatam uh, in, in, a, in a nutshell. So the verse, yeah. So that that's one argument that's given is that Vyasadeva compiled the Vedas, and then his lamentation, he was depressed, and then uh, Narada Muni came and said, "The reason why you're depressed, you've done a horrible thing. You've written all these scriptures that don't directly glorify Bhakti and the Supreme Personality of Godhead." And then he went on to write Bhagavatam, which is the essence of the Vedas, or it's it's the commentary on the Vedanta Sutra by the author himself. Um, the what yeah, I was, it's called the ripened ripened fruit of the tree of the Vedas. So that's one way the, glorifi- the Bhagavatam glorifies itself. But I was always, always also thinking of how the Bhagavatam says, you know, it kicks out all cheating religion and how yes. it, it is the torchlight uh, of knowledge in this age of Kali. So I don't know if there's any other Vedic scripture that says this is the book to shine a light into the darkness of Kali Yuga. Um, I also don't know. <laughs> So, I mean, if, <laughs> if it is the case... It's definitely there in the Bhagavatam. If it is the case that the Bhagavatam's the only ones making these claims and we're going to accept the Vedas yeah. all in toto, and then we find that when we accept all of them, this one's saying, I'm the one you want to focus on, then just by accepting all of the Vedas, we end up accepting the Bhagavatam as, with priority. Yeah. Yeah, and we also understand, as I going back to Narutam Das Sadhu Shastra Guru Vakya, we want to look for a culture in which we're going to be able to get uh, Shastra along with Sadhu and Guru who will be able to teach. Uh, otherwise, you know, we can't just go to a library and pick up something from Veda and get much benefit out of it. And it's the Bhagavatam, which has this long tradition of commentary. I mentioned Sridhar Swami, but it goes right up to the present time. Uh, it's a very, so it's a living tradition is, is the point. Well, if it is a spiritual science, then we would expect, like other sciences, that you need to learn it from somebody who's competent in it. So Prabhupada will give right. the example that you can't just go and get a medical textbook and then call yourself a doctor after reading through it. <laughs> yes. 
Um, okay, so we're, yeah. we're coming up on two hours. I, I normally make these two hours, but we haven't done oh, a, yes. a whole lot of hermeneutics. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if I sorry if I went off on side tracks. No, no, I, I was doing that because, I mean, I my, personally, I've studied epistemology a lot and, you know, I get into the atheism, theism debates and I, I've got some Christian yeah. friends who are quite into Advaita Vedanta and so I've debated with them, no, Bhagavatam, and so I was like, oh, no, we should cover this. <laughs> Yes. Um, well, I suppose we can uh, continue another time. We we could do a, 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 another five or ten minutes on hermeneutics if you've got some points oh, you, you'd okay. like to make. Uh, or we can wrap it up. Up to you. Um, I would say just generally that uh, the hermeneutics in relation to the Bhagavatam is as I mentioned, the commentarial tradition is alive today, and that means that uh, the practice of hermeneutics is ongoing. And it's also the case that there are disagreements uh, within the tradition which are there in the commentaries, uh, but these are differences which are not necessarily, or which generally are not it's not life-threatening. It's, it's differences whereby one can understand, okay, we can take this statement uh, in more than one way. We can uh, appreciate that there are many ways uh, to, to understand this. And here I would point to the work of a scholar at University of Chicago. Uh, his name is uh, Paul Griffiths, Paul J. Griffiths, who wrote a small book called Religious Reading. And he's making his book, uh, he's arguing that religious reading is very much missing in modern life. He contrasts religious reading with what he calls consumer reading. And he says that unfortunately, most academic reading is just that. It's consumer reading. It's reading to get something quickly that you can use uh, for your own benefit, for your own argument, or whatever. Um, and once you've read it, uh, you don't read it again. Religious reading is very different. And the Bhagavatam, in order to, I would say Vedic literature generally, but the Bhagavatam specifically, it needs to be read within this culture which I've spoken of, and it needs to be read and again read and read again and heard and again and again repeated. And by this, just like cultivating a garden, you're cultivating, um, you're cultivating a vision. The idea is one wants to learn uh, to see everything, the world, to see oneself and the world and beyond the world through the eyes, through the vision uh, that Shastra 
in particular, the Bhagavatam is providing. That's that's the idea. So I've linked that book in the description and in the chat, the one you just recommended. Um, so, uh-huh. so I was more picturing we were going to talk about like, you know, here's a set of rules for how to interpret, a, a, you know, a given line of text and, you know, you apply these rules and here's how you work out which rule to use. And then if that rule doesn't work, you use this rule. And um, that's <laughs> not really what you're putting forward at all. <clears throat> there may be some of that, um, but it's it's not so cut and dried generally. Uh, I would say the sort of approach that you're referring to is it's a kind of legalistic approach. Yeah, right. So that's what you'd use in a debate. Yeah, you might use in a debate. And uh, we do discuss also in our course on, uh, on hermeneutics, we discuss about debate and we, we discuss about three qualities of debate. Uh, and this comes not specifically from our own Vaishnava tradition. It comes from the school, the philosophical school of Nyaya, uh, which is uh, the school of logic, in which they discuss the process of debate. And uh, the first, the first and best type of debate of debate is called vada. And vada, the word vada can mean statement, it can mean doctrine, uh, but it has the sense here of a common pursuit of truth, where the aim is not to win an argument. The aim is simply to understand, to, to get deeper understanding. So already this type of debate is sort of out of the picture of most of what we think of when we use the English word debate, because when we're thinking of debate, we think of winning, isn't it? (laughs) Somehow prevailing with our idea. Well, I distinguish between academic debate and popular level or internet debate. So the academics... Political debate. Yeah, you know, when you have an actual philosopher on... If you show them a hole in their argument, they'll just be like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that before. Let me reformulate my argument. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're debating an internet atheist and you, you point out a flaw yeah. in their argument, they'll just use any rhetorical device they can in order to not let the audience figure out what you've done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they'll throw a red herring in. <laughs> <laughs> Even if they later go and change their view, they, they won't admit that publicly in the middle of a live yeah. debate. So I I, right. I much prefer the philosophical level, although I do think it is nice to, you know, some people yeah, do well, need that, to be that publicly would be defeated. Vada. So Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, he had debates where he would publicly defeat people, right? Um, did he not? It seems so, yeah. But somebody was saying um, that he did that in special circumstances in order to protect the honor of tradition when he was under attack. He wasn't like, yeah. oh, there's this other school and people are believing what they believe. Let's go and win some converts by organizing a debate and defeating one of their acharyas. Right. Well, the the famous debate, uh, which later, I guess, he 
and then rode up as not the whole debate, but his own position. Uh, Brahmana, Brahmana O Vaishnava is the title, the Bengali book, in which um, there was a debate in the year 1911 uh, of uh, who is superior, a Brahman or a Vaishnava. And he argued that the Vaishnava is, if someone is a Vaishnava, then they are also a Brahmana, but not vice versa. And then he quoted so much from Shastra in order to demonstrate that. And um, yeah, we are told, the uh, I don't know how hagiographic it is, but we're told that he, he, he won the debate hands down. <laughs> right. <laughs> we know from internet debates that everybody always goes home thinking their side won. So <laughs> I like your point about wondering how hagiographic it is. Um, so yeah. another point was, um, oh, oh, I can't remember, can't remember what the point was. It was something about hermeneutics. And, um, yeah. I started to speak about different types of debate. Um, oh, no, was, there's Vada. Yeah. And then the second one is Jalpa. That's where, you know, you start getting into argumentation in order to win. Uh, and then there's Vitanda is the worst, where basically everyone is just insulting each other. It's not, there's, there's, there's no, there's no substance. Yeah, I, I stay away from those. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it, it was something about how, um, the point I wanted to make about like uh, you said, well, we can't just boil it down to a set of rules. And so that reminds me of a, a quote, Bhaktivedanta speaks on it nicely, how uh, when Yudhishthira Maharaj was being asked questions by the Yaksha, and one of the questions was, uh, how, where is the path found or what is the path? And Yudhishthira replied, the path is found in the heart of the pure devotee. And I've always thought that point was nice yeah. uh, that um, you, you can't boil it. It's not like you can have like some Bhakta manual or something. And this is just, you know, you follow it like an algorithm and it tells you what to do in absolutely every circumstance. We actually have to use our heart to figure it out as we go along. And yes. you made that point earlier, how there's some room for interpreting things. You know, normally if something's vague, you know, for example, uh, sometimes when something is, is vague or purposely unclear, it's because the person hasn't done their homework and uh, they don't want to say something which will later be found out to be wrong. So they'll just say things that could be interpreted either way. So later on, nobody can prove them wrong. <laughs> yes, that can be. Um, any final points? I, I think there was another point I was going to make, but I've 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 lost it. I'll I'll probably remember it as soon as we <laughs> sign off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'll just mention that uh, maybe this is more for an internal audience, but uh, we do have uh, this course. Uh, it's it's specifically for members of. Um, our mission, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Um, but uh, I think it's also of interest for those outside the tradition, the fact that we do have, that we are thinking and reflecting on this because many people think, oh, these Hare Krishnas, they don't think. Uh, all they do is chant Hare Krishna and they don't think. And they may be surprised that we do a lot of thinking, a lot of uh, very... Uh, refined uh, reflection on a very vast 
collection uh, of what we consider sacred literature. And it's an ongoing process, which um, because we've created this course, we're encouraging members within our society to think more deeply and to discuss more expertly and more effectively about uh, the, the content of our scriptural tradition in order to uh, come to deeper understanding for ourselves individually, uh, for our community of Gaudiya Vaishnavas, and also for our uh, presentation uh, of what we take as valuable for everyone, uh, our appropriate presentation for others in the wider world. Cool. So should I put a link? I'll put a link in the description if people want to learn more about the course you're talking about. Well, I have to say this is still in early stages. Okay. We've taught it <laughs> we've taught it twice uh, to sort of small uh, sort of pilot testing groups. And um, I think it's going to be a while yet before we have, um, you know, up and running for the world, All right. so to say. Cool. So um, what I would yeah. like, what I would like to post, um, I'll have to give this, well, maybe I can find it here now, oh, yeah. is a link to a, to a film, uh, which I have prepared. It's a one-hour documentary on the Bhagavata Purana. And it's a discussion which I had with several scholars. We had, a, um, um, we had an academic conference in Chennai some years ago, and I interviewed them. So this may be of interest to some of your listeners. Um, you can give me the link after, so we'll we'll put that in the description. Okay, I'll, okay, I'll give you later then. Um, cool. So, any any other final points? I think that's it from me. Cool. So, thank, for now, thanks for coming on. We've got a few more planned with Krishna Shaitra Swami. We're going to do one. I think it's next week or two weeks from now, same time with Keith Ward. Uh, you want to say something about Keith Ward for the audience? I just mentioned uh, earlier he was my uh, supervisor. Supervisor, he was my mentor. Uh, for I did a second uh, master's degree in Oxford before I went into the doctoral program, and he was my mentor for that. Uh, he's a wonderful, highly respected scholar uh, in Christian theology who had a serious, I think he still has, he's retired now, he had serious interest in uh, other traditions than Christianity. So he was interested in comparative religion and comparative theology. Um, he, uh, he was what's called the, Re the Regis Professor of, uh, Re of Theology in the theology and religion faculty at Oxford University. Regis professor means he's 
he was appointed by the queen. <laughs> so it's a quite special uh, kind of uh, position. Well, I was wondering what that meant. Um, sorry? I was wondering what the regis meant. Yeah, he was appointed by the queen. And um, aside from that, he's a very... Um, uh, a very friendly person, one someone one can talk with uh, in a very, how to say, uh, he's a very genial person, I think is, is, is the word. Um, and his writing, some of his, I'm just rereading one of his books. He wrote a book uh, for a general audience called God, A Guide for the perplexed. And there's a lot of humor in it. It's, it's theological. Uh, it's also historical, but it's extremely readable. And uh, I think anyone of your audience would appreciate it. Cool. So if you enjoyed this, you won't want to miss that. Um, we've got one question in the comments. We'll do that in a second. And uh, we've, if you haven't subscribed, please do so already so you can see more of these videos and give us a like to boost it in the algorithm. And uh, you can comment in the description. We can get some discussion going. That also helps the algorithm. Um, and I've got David Bentley Hart on uh, for a discussion with Ranchor Prime. That's happening on... We have to check it out what time it is in your time zone but it's 7 a.m new zealand time so that's just in like two days or something um if you enjoyed this you'll also like that and then i'll just pull up this last question how to determine what is perspective uh prescriptive and what is descriptive none of our charas seem to have given these terminologies can you explain this maharaj ah that's interesting <clears throat> well, in, in, <clears throat> excuse me. In Sanskrit language, uh, there is uh, grammatical difference. Um, in the Sanskrit language, a prescription will typically be given in a particular form of a verb called the vidhi lean, uh, which is translated in English as optative. Um, the optative form is, well, sometimes it's called a command, but it's not always a command. It can also just be an invitation. But in the context of prescription, it's usually in the form of, if you desire uh, such and such result, then you should do such and such. And that can be readily recognized, as I said, by the uh, grammatical form uh, uh, in the Sanskrit. So if one knows a little Sanskrit, um, the, the Vidhilin form can usually be recognized pretty easily. Tat vigyanartam sagarun eva abhigachet, that abhigachet is a form. Um, you should approach if you if you want to know higher knowledge, tatvijana artam. If you have the arta, um, the interest of knowing vijnana of that, namely the absolute truth, tatvijana uh, artam sagurun eva abhigachet. Then saha he or she 
uh, Guru Eva, one must specifically approach a, a guru. So that's prescriptive. And then uh, description will come in other grammatical forms. There are several different grammatical forms, um, which I won't go into and make everybody tired. <laughs> right. And then we've got one person saying Hinduism slash Natan Dharma is not based on text. Texts were written by saints. Uh, and then they're saying God is one. Do you, do you want to comment on that? Um, well, that's, you know, it's funny. Uh, one professor I had who uh, was teaching as a professor, not as a practitioner, about Hinduism, but I think there was a certain truth to what he said. He said, whatever you say about Hinduism, the opposite is also true. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll find people who will say, I am Hindu. Or uh, here this person has used the word Sanatan because many Hindus like to use this term uh, Sanatan Dharma or eternal Dharma. And so um, this person is saying it's not based on text. And in a certain sense, I would agree. Um, but uh, there are texts, and these texts are, um, it, it is a textual tradition, and most Hindus will say uh, something different from what this person has said, namely, our tradition is based on Veda. Now, um, uh, then we can go into what is Veda, and we already discussed that to some extent whether it's coming from, she said, from saints, um, the, the standard tradition, as I said, would say, well, it's coming through saints, uh, but uh, it is still text. And text does not mean simply written text. It, it's a broader sense of the term text. Uh, in fact, the four Vedic Samhitas, the emphasis was on hearing and repeating, memorizing. Um, it's it's with the um, with the epics and the Puranas. Then we get into written text, uh, but even there, the Puranas, it's very much about the oral tradition. So it depends on many factors. All right, we better wrap it up there. Thanks for the discussion. I, I very much enjoyed that, and I can't wait for the next one. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Arjuna Prabhu. And I look forward to the next one as well. Cool, and thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you on the next one. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.